All right, we're continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah. As I was preparing, I spent a few time, uh, some minutes just kind of searching out different books. I tend to do this when I'm preparing a sermon outside of the text itself and, and uh, trying to think through how I can kind of begin the, the sermon and introduction. And one story in particular from one of uh, Oz Guinness's books, and I, I love reading Oz Guinness when I can. He's um, very helpful. He writes about a story of a violinist, uh, Yehudi Menhuinen, and he was a, a maestro, and, and he started as a violinist as a kid, and he held a- audiences um, throughout the world for, for the majority of his career. And, and like many musicians that you read about, and you can read about their stories, his gifts were precocious. They are well advanced of his age when he was a child. He made his violin debut in concert at the age of seven in San Francisco. And his career officially began at the age of 12. But from the time he was three, his parents would take him to concerts in New York. And after one performance, um, at the age of around four, he asked his parents afterwards for a violin. Uh, He received it from some friends, and it wasn't a real one. It was a toy violin. And he was angry at four. He recalls that he burst into tears, threw it to the ground, and would have nothing to do with it. And reflecting years later, he said he he wanted nothing but the real thing. He says, as an adult, to play was to be, and all the rest of life was rehearsal. He found his his gifts, his, his calling in life, so to say. And somehow we as humans are never truly happy than where we're expressing the deepest gifts that are within us, that God has given us. And God normally calls us along the line of our giftedness, but the true purpose of our gifts is stewardship with service and never selfishness. So that's a good subject that to think about and consider as we begin this morning. We, we spent some time thinking about this briefly with high school seniors, right? Hey, seniors, can you tell me how many, you don't, you don't have to say it out loud, but think through, how many times have they asked, people have asked you in the last few months, so what's your plan after graduation? Right, that just seems like the, the thing we do as, as a culture, right? So what are you going to do? What, what degree or job are you looking to get? And, and sometimes those questions, just so the rest of us know, can be really daunting for a 17 and 18-year-old. Right, it can, in, in fact, in some ways be very crippling to a 17 and 18-year-old. Just recently, a month and a half ago, we had an elders and wives dinner, just a time of fellowship, and we just happened to, the, the subject afterwards, sitting around the living room talking, it went to the, the discussion of, are you doing what you thought you would do in high school? You know, and it's, it's a very fascinating question. The, the 10 of us, we, walk, we, we walked around a room, or not walked, what we talked about in a room, only one actually did exactly what they thought they were going to do in high school. The rest did something else. So no one can plan perfectly for the future. No one knows quite clearly what the curveballs will come in life, but we can seek to understand the giftedness that God has given us and steward that for the service of others for the glory of God. And so for you seniors, and even for college graduates moving on and understanding and trying to figure out life, and for everyone else in this room, it's not so much what you will do with your life, but who you will serve with your life. That's the most important to think through. Your gift, my gift, and giftedness are ultimately God's because we belong to Him. 
And so we should steward what he has given us for the service of others and for the glory of God. So here's the main idea, here's the main thrust I'm attempting to make here this morning in in Nehemiah chapter 2. It's on the screen behind me. God's call for Christians is to be faithful in their service for the glory of God. God's call for Christians is to be faithful in their service for the glory of God. And there's three points walking through this because I am a Baptist at heart. And three is always easiest for me. Nehemiah's arrival, Nehemiah's investigation, and Nehemiah's opposition. So if you haven't already, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. We looked at the first eight verses last week. This week we're going to finish the chapter, verses 9 through 20. If you're using a Bible that's in the seats, please feel free to use that. If you don't have a Bible, take that as your own. It's on page 370. And you'll be helped this morning to have a Bible open because that's where the majority of our time will be spent in God's Word. So, Nehemiah chapter 2, follow with me as I read verses 9 through 20, the rest of the chapter. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the official did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build." So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But with Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem, the Arab heard, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So, Coming back to verse 9, the first point here, Nehemiah's arrival, verses 9 through 11 is what we'll look at here. If you remember, if you were here last week, we, we, Nehemiah had been praying in chapter 1. After hearing about the, the problems in Jerusalem, he started praying about his people and how God would use him and asking that God would use him to go before the king. And, and, and time had come as we, we came to chapter 2 that he would have that opportunity to come before the king and bring the request. And what we find out, and what we found out last week, is is God answered the prayers. Through this liberal king that he was working through, answered the prayers and allowed him to go back and and now rebuild the walls. In fact, reversing 
his course of action that he had made years prior. And so God had provided everything for Nehemiah. All through his prayers, God was now providing the way. And as we come to this passage this morning, he gives them the letters to, to, to land there in the province beyond the river, and the army is by his side. Just one note, because Nehemiah really uh, connects to Ezra. If you were to read through the book of Ezra, you, you realize that when Ezra had a journey back, um, the king offers protection, and Ezra refuses as a matter of faith. But Nehemiah here, though, accepts the protection as a matter of wisdom. When you read this in the Bible, I want you to, to make a, a, aware that both men are correct, okay? Not one is correct or one has more faith and the other one just lacks some faith. Both men are correct. Both men are trusting God, but their trust is expressed in different ways. And that's an important application for us to consider, to think through this morning. If we choose Ezra's path, we should not condemn those who take Nehemiah's path and vice versa. It's not our place to judge in these matters. Both are seeking to be faithful in service to God. See, it's one thing to come to Jerusalem and effectively engage in teaching religion as, as Ezra did, but it's a quite another thing for Nehemiah to come and build defensive walls to the city, thus reversing the king's prior edict. And so right away we find out in verses, uh, verses 10 there that, that Nehemiah receives opposition. Right, right away, who is this guy and, and what does he come to do? And we need to understand and remind ourselves again as you read the Bible, God's work is sometimes done in the middle of opposition. Sanballat and Tobiah come unto the scene in verse 10, and, and Sanballat the Horonite was the governor of Samaria. The term Horonite refers to the town that he was most likely from, a province in Moab. And so Sanballat was a Moabite. And Tobiah, the Ammonite, was probably an official in Samaria. These guys are not happy, as we find out, that someone is back to serve the welfare, to seek the welfare of God's people. They, they don't realize, nor do they care to ask, it seems, of what happened in, in Susa with the king. They don't know what's transpired. And these names will, will, will resurface throughout the book. We'll see them later in this passage. And these men will seek to disrupt the work of Nehemiah, the work of God's people, simply because they don't see their own gifts as, as a means of serving others, but their gifts in, are really meant to serve themselves. How can they get the most out of things for themselves? The last thing I want you to notice here in verse 11 in this first point is, is that Nehemiah travels 900 miles from the king's presence to now Jerusalem, which probably took around three to four months. And, and what do we see there in verse 11? So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. So after traveling 900 miles in three days, Nehemiah rests. I think for our culture and for our day, I think that's a, just a good application to think through. I think in, in time, and, time and space for right now, it's easier to just go, 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 go until we're burned out. Rest is a good thing. We are built to rest. Part of the reason why you go to sleep every night is to prove to you that you're not God. Okay? Only God doesn't need sleep. The rest of us does. And physically exhausted people are not going to get as much done as they desire and hope. 
And when we're tired, it steals our joy and adjusts our perspective and it breeds anxiety and brings unnecessary burdens that, that then evaporate peace in our lives. And so just read back through the stories, multiple practical stories in the Bible. You remember Elijah, you know, on the mount, mountain before the, the prophets and all that he does and calls down fire. Do you remember that whole story? It's a fabulous story. Do you remember what happens next? He runs and then he's afraid of the queen, and, and he's exhausted. And what God does in ministry to Elijah in that moment is saying, rest, eat. So, so don't, don't think of those things as anti-spiritual or, or just bad things. No, this is part of serving the Lord in, in context. And, and, and really, Nehemiah's greatest need after all this, this traveling was to rest so that he'd be used by God. Um, God calls for us as Christians to be faithful in our service for the glory of God. And so Nehemiah's first step was receiving permission to arrive, and he gets there. But his next step, as we'll see in point two, was investigation. So the second point, Nehemiah's investigation, verses 12 through 16. We, we see this, this change of, of, of scene here in verses 12 as, as Nehemiah now begins to, to look at all the walls. So before he, he, he stands before the people and shares the plan and how the king has sent him, he spent some time investigating to, to survey the project. So why did he do this at night? Well, it's probably because he wanted to keep his cards close to the chest. He, he, wants, to, he wants to understand the situation in full detail. At this point, um, 900 miles away, he only heard by word of mouth what the, what the situation was in, in, in Jerusalem. And so now he's going to evaluate that himself. And so he gathers a few men, as we read, and he rides a donkey, most likely, around the city at night to evaluate uh, the walls. <clears throat> at the time when Nehemiah was there, Jerusalem was located on two hills that ran parallel to each other from north to south. Uh, if you're really curious, there's probably some maps in the back of your Bible if you want to look at that, just don't get too distracted with maps. Come back to us. Uh, when, when Nehemiah exited the valley gate, he traveled counterclockwise directions starting the west side where the hills were steep. And once outside of the gate, he headed south, going past the valley gate and the dung gate, which is in the very south end. And as the name implies, dung gate, it's about poo. Okay? I had to remove it somehow from the city. It was at the south end. And then, then he, he, he goes through the Valley of Hinnon, was the gate where it, that came out of. And then the Fountain Gate was a little farther along at the southeastern corner of the city where Hinnom and the Kedron Valleys met. And then he talks about the, the, the King's Pool. The King's Pool is known in the New Testament as, as Pool of Siloam. If you read John chapter 9, where the, the story where Jesus tells the blind man to wash, that's the same pool, that's the same area. So why give these details? Why, why is Nehemiah giving this in the book? Did he have like a, a word quota he had to meet? I, I think there, there's, it's an important question to ask as we read the Bible. I, first, I think he's trying to relate to us that rebuilding of these walls was not going to be an easy task. But he also wants the reader to understand that, that this was God's will for him to lead this task and, and God's will for the people to follow his leadership after he spent this dedicated time praying, inspecting the walls, examining the shortcomings, it's also helpful for us all these years later to see the evidence that this really happened. This is really there. This is a real place. 
There's evidence here as he walks through this. But it'll be a big deal for, for Nehemiah as we look at this to build up these walls. You know, today, God's name is, is no longer at stake in a city or within walls or uh, gates in a temple. But God's name is still very much at stake in the lives of people who call themselves Christians. God's name is at stake in how we live our lives. Listen to Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Right there, the, the, the writer of Proverbs is relating this issue in some ways to our own life in regards to self-control. That, that man in Proverbs 25, 28 is destroyed by any passing temptation or outside influence. So I need to ask, I, I want you to consider and think through what walls or gates need inspection in your life today? What walls have fallen down? What gates have crumbled under the pressure of this culture or under the pressure of just bad habits? What about technology? We spent a whole class period. We've, we spent weeks talking about this. There's a reason why. Just to remind you again, uh, we don't report to other people about what classes we offer and take attendance to somehow get a ribbon at the end of the year, okay? We select classes to help our people, to, to serve us so that we can serve Him. And, and we've been spending time talking about technology. You know, do you handle your technology or does your technology handle you? Are you... Are you at the mercy of your smartphone? You know, what, what entertainment, friends, do you allow into your home? Or what music do you allow into your ears? I think sometimes we, we think that we have no control over this. It just, it just comes in. I, I didn't know what to do, and so I just pressed the button, play. It's not true, friends. We, we make decisions. And, and what walls or gates in your life and those issues have just, they're crumbled, they're gone. Anything can come in. Married people here today, what gates or walls have fallen in your marriage in disarray? And so that you seldomly talk about anything in your marriage except for the weather or what's for dinner. Is your marriage healthy? because the gates and the walls that you've put up there to protect outside influences that would come in to destroy, they're not there, and so you're continuing to build trust with one another. Or have the gates completely broken down in your marriage? The walls are down, and you two are like ships passing in the night, just roommates in the same home. You know, this is an easy gate or wall to, to neglect and one even harder to rebuild. Single people here, single people that desire to, to marry one day, what about your relationships? Have you bought into the lie of evangelistic dating? 
You know, the, you know what I mean by that, right? You, the, date, the person you're dating, you know they're not a Christian. They're really not walking with the Lord. But you just hope that maybe if you date long enough, if you spend enough time with you because you really radiate all of the good things, that, that they, will, they, they will become that. They'll become a Christian or be really mature. And so your evangelistic dating, friends, that is foolish and dangerous. Single people, what about the, the walls and gates of your eyes and ears? Does anything come in? I mean, what's stopping every sort of media from consuming you right now? Have you thought much about how it takes plans and execution to block harmful things from devouring you, from controlling you? Perhaps today is the day where you you really consider, seriously consider, to find an older Christian here and begin meeting together and seeking wisdom and help so that you can rebuild the walls in your life, that you can follow Christ more closely. Find someone 10 years farther down the path and, and ask them for help, for wisdom. Ask them to meet, to pray together, to encourage one another. Maybe for all of us, this, that you realize this morning for the first time in a while that just as Jerusalem's gates lie in ruined and burned down, so your life lies the same way. Your gates are burning now, and you're unable to put the flames out all by yourself. The truth that we need to hear this morning more than anything else is that there is a better leader than Nehemiah who can deliver you from all the danger that is facing your life through the broken down walls. There is really one who is more passionate for God's name to be honored and worshiped and for his kingdom to come and for God's will to be done in your life. And that passion led Jesus to give his life so that all who would trust in him would be saved. He is the one that cares most. Friends, you and I need Jesus more than anything this morning. After careful investigation into our own lives, the real answer, the right answer, is to run to him. And just so you know, he already knows your issues. And he isn't annoyed that you've come asking for help. He isn't going to chastise you and say, it's about time. That's not our Lord. He welcomes us in. In fact, he's been waiting for us. And so the encouragement, friends, is to run to him and to be honest with him and to seek help in these areas. Well, we've looked at Nehemiah's arrival and his investigation. And last, we'll see Nehemiah's opposition, verses 17 through 20. Before we get to the opposition that that he will face, we have to see the desires that, that Nehemiah has for the people. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Do you notice again? We saw this in chapter 1 in in Nehemiah's prayer, but he does it again here. Uh, Nehemiah isn't condemning the people and separating himself from them. Do you notice that in his language? 
he includes himself with the plight that they're in. He is one of the people. He doesn't separate himself from them or from their circumstances, but he enters into the issues and includes his life with theirs. He even includes himself with the suffering of derision. The derision Nehemiah referred to was not only just physical deterioration of the city, but a spiritual decline that came with it. And so what you need to understand is it's very important for leadership especially, is Nehemiah not only in chapter 1 includes himself in the prayers of his people, but here in chapter 2 as he goes to the people, he includes himself in the same issues that they're going to face. He's going to work alongside these people. And as leaders, those that are here and serve in any leadership position, it's easy to separate ourselves from the problems of people that we minister with and alongside of. It's easier to, especially if you're new to a situation, let's say you've been placed in a new leadership position and you see all of the issues, especially here in church ministry, to come in and be like, man, whoever was leading this before really screwed this up. It is a good thing they've got me. They did this themselves. I'm here to clean up their mess. That's not what we see with Nehemiah. That's not the attitude he has. He identifies with them. And if, if we don't identify with those that we serve, we won't properly serve them. And, and I, I, Nehemiah identifies with them, and then he gives them the, the heavenly motivation for the work. Look at verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. So he, he first appeals to their sense of disgrace first, their derision that they're in and that he's in. And he says, you know, remember who you are. We're the people of God, essentially. We're the, we're the Lord's covenant people. And then he directs them to the hope that they have outside of themselves. That it's, it's hope in God that is going to help and serve in this way. And we find this pattern, again, over and over in the Bible, don't we? That's the motivation we have for serving. It's remembering who you belong to. We don't serve others in church ministry to somehow garner love and appreciation from God. We don't serve others to somehow gain salvation from Him. No, we serve because we remember what Christ has done for us. That is the motivation of serving. We serve because we know who we belong to. We remember that we are blood-bought people of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And, and God gives us the strength and the motivation to serve others. And God will not leave us to ourselves. No, he says this again, the hand of God is upon us. And, and do you see the response of the people when Nehemiah shares this information? Let us rise up and build. Nehemiah doesn't do the work for them either, right? Their response is, we're going to do this. Nehemiah doesn't say, I've, I've come with this plan, I've come with the letters from the king, and I'm going to come and I'm going to build the walls for you. Sometimes that's easy as a leader, right? Sometimes we think, or at least I've thought, it's really hard to delegate and help others serve, so I'm just going to do it for them. And that's bad leadership, honestly. Because essentially, when the Lord takes us home, and he will, 
people are left to try to fend for themselves, and they haven't been taught. Nehemiah doesn't do this, though. Nehemiah presents the issue, presents in the plan that he has had, the observation, the investigation of the walls, and he brings it to the people, and the work is up to them, and he is included, and he wants to unify them in this common project together. And we're going to see that. We have a thrilling chapter in chapter 3, just so you know. I say that sarcastically. But chapter 3 is important, okay? Don't disregard it. Read it this week. But it's this list in chapter 3 of, of what family did this part and what family did this part. And it's all there to show us, again, the unity of God's people working together for the glory of God. And they will come into opposition. We see it here in the end of chapter 2, verse 19. When Samballot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Servant, and, and Geshem heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Friends, no, one way or another, Satan will always resist the work of God. Now, interesting enough, these three, Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem, have nothing in common as, we, as you spend time researching them. But with many opportunities that we see in the Scriptures, even with Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees who had nothing in common, they unite together in opposition. And so all three of these dudes in verse 19 have nothing in common except one thing, go against Nehemiah. I have seen this too many times in life and ministry you've been a part of any church ministry, you've seen this. People who seldomly get along together, that when they have an issue, somehow it's like magnets coming together. They come together, and, in, and then unity, they're going to go against this enemy. That's not just in ministry, that's in life, right? Somehow just this idea that we have this common adversary, so we're going to go together. I find that interesting as we look at these three, who were not buddies, Okay, we're not friends that spent time together, but they have this common issue they're going to face, and they're going to go against, and it's Nehemiah, and it's God's people, and the weapon that they choose is scorn and ridicule, but Nehemiah doesn't answer a fool according to his folly. Nehemiah doesn't fear the king as they try to stoke within him, and he doesn't fear the opposition. Do you notice the, the fearlessness of Nehemiah in this passage? It, it's stark, really, when you think about it. I wonder if you think of yourself as fearless in life. M maybe you think that's just a silly statement to put, or a, top, or a title to put on yourself. Or maybe you, you think that, yeah, I am that type of person. Let me ask you another question. When you have an eternal dialogue with yourself, and you all do, so don't lie, how important do you find others' opinions to be of you? How much do you care about what other people think about you? In some ways, that's called the fear of man. The fear of man can be crushing. Do you want to know what can free you from the, the crushing fear of man, a proper fear of God. 
God is the only one who we should worry about what he thinks of us. He is the only one whose opinion that we should really value. Every other person in this world will misunderstand us in some way. But God always knows the truth about us. If you fear God alone, you will be able to withstand any opposition that this world will bring. God is the only one we're to fear. And when I mean fear, I mean to revere, to respect, to honor. And his opposition to us, friend, that's something to fear. See, friends, God is the only one in the universe that you don't want against you. So I ask, are you opposed to God this morning? The only way to not be opposed to God is to recognize that you need him by repenting of your sins and placing your full and complete trust in him alone. Every one of us is born into this world in opposition to God. That's how we all come. And it's only through the recognition of who we are and how we stand before this God and through repentance, recognition, that the admitting that we're sin, sinners and turning to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that we're no longer in opposition to him. In fact, we're called friends. So as I said last week, you know, that, that final day of judgment, right? If you're in opposition to God all by yourself, you will still stand in opposition to him. But friends, when we stand before God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he looks at us, not as just us, but he looks at us through Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for us on the cross. That's something to rejoice in, isn't it? And so I would encourage you, I'd implore you actually, if you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sins and trusted in him, that you would trust in him today. You would spend time talking with him or find a friend, find myself this morning. I would love to walk through this with you and answer any questions so that you would trust in him this morning and have a relationship with him as you leave. What we see here in this passage is ultimately Nehemiah fears God above all else. And and he displays with faith what, what it looks like to fear God. He says in verse 20, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. When when he says they they had no portion, right, or claim, it refers to the share in the constellation of the Jewish nation. They were not part of the Jews, so they had no legal right over Jerusalem. And so he's just stating facts here. He doesn't dive into the details that they're they're, uh, seeking to draw him in. Nehemiah responds that they're only servants of God, And the outcome of the city would be God's doing and not man's accomplishment. Nehemiah instructs these men, and for everyone listening, that God's work will be done in God's way for God's glory alone. And God will not share his glory with another. I read another story this week from the mid-19th century from a church historian 
about the Welsh revival. And he writes about this as a firsthand account of traveling home with an elderly minister after this minister had preached a few times. And he writes this, On the way home, I dared not break the silence for miles. Towards midnight, I ventured to say, Didn't we have blessed meetings, Mr. Morgan? Yes, he replied, and after a pause added, The Lord would give us great things if only he could trust us. What do you mean, I asked. He answered, if he could trust us to not steal the glory for ourselves. Then the midnight air rang with his cry at the top of his voice, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. How are we doing, friends, with using your giftedness for the service of others and for the glory of God? See, God calls Christians to be faithful in their service and the glory of God. And serving effectively for God means knowing what, what needs need to be done and then, and then doing them as faithfully as we can. This means we need to properly assess our lives, properly assess whether we are actually seeking the best for those that we've been placed to serve, those placed under our care, and, and entrusting the Lord in the midst of it. Sometimes the very best thing for others in our service might hurt us or cause us to sacrifice more. I wonder, as you go through these stories, as you hear this, these narrative stories of, of, of placing yourself, like who, who would you say you are in this story? You know, Nehemiah was sent on a mission. He received papers as confirmation from the king of Susa and the, and the king eternal, essentially. The people, they're also important to the task at hand. Their willingness to, to be led. Their willingness to receive a leader that they don't know. They haven't had a relationship with. And then to be able to trust him as he has their best interests in mind. But there's another group of people, the three, right? Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. They're on a mission too, most definitely. And it's to disrupt the work of God by any means necessary. They're in it for themselves. They're in it for their own desires. So which one of these groups of people could be said of you, that you are that by others in your life? Some believe, maybe just naturally, that they're just, they're Nehemiah. I'm sending a mission. Even though I don't have proper authority, I'm going to just lead. I mean, he's the main character of the story. He seems exciting. So uh, he's the man with the plan. The people should want to follow his example. But unfortunately, because they've misread the situation and misapplied the text, they've probably shown themselves to be Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Disruptors at best. I think it's healthy for us to think through, where, where do I fit? or how do I, how do I take this passage and apply it to myself in service for others in the glory of God? And ultimately, when we serve God, we need to recognize that as we serve Him in this world, we will face opposition. And, and the clearest example of that is Jesus Christ when we turn to the New Testament. If we follow him, we will be opposed. Jesus said in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Later, we read of Peter, who was also present when Jesus said this in John 15. And, and Peter writing to a bunch of persecuted and struggling Christians, he says this, for 
for to this you have been called because Christ has suffered for you, leading you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Friends, we need to, I think, spend time examining ourselves through the text, reminding ourselves of, of who we should be serving. And, and when we're put to the test, like the people of God, we recognize that we're going to face opposition and we trust, entrust ourselves to him. And so I would encourage you, church, to pray for us, those of us in leadership, especially for the elders in this church, that we would rightly respond when our leadership is opposed. And sometimes there's good opposition, and sometimes there's not. So pray for this, that we would be gracious and loving to those that, that seek to disrupt what God has called us to do. But ultimately, pray for us and yourself that we would be willing to serve others for the glory of God and not for recognition for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I, and I pray that we would be a people that are eager to give our lives in service for others instead of ourselves. I pray that we would be a people who follow Jesus, not when just things are easy, but even in the midst of opposition as well. Help us, Father, to, as a church family, to, to not lean away from, from the people here, but to lean in in those relationships. I pray that we would be able to build bonds with one another and to encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. Help us, Spirit, to be faithful to your word, faithful to you in all things, eager to serve others, and seeking most definitely and most, most highly the glory of God in all things. And when we fall short, God, pray that you continue to forgive us and give us strength to serve you. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.